Welcome to Science Radio, a space where we chat about culture, belief, wellness and current events all through the lens of faith. Okay, welcome back to Science Radio. It is my great pleasure to introduce Nathan Brown. Welcome, Nathan. Yeah, how you doing, Jesse? I am doing well. How about yourself? Yeah, kicking along. Excited to be talking about um, the new issue of Science Magazine and the good things that are in it. That is the spirit. I'll give you a hundred bucks later, Nathan. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited too because today we get to listen in. Uh, well, I get to listen in and you get to listen in for the second time on a conversation that you had a little while ago with the one, the only Tim Costello. If you are a Christian listener, then you might know that name. If you're not a Christian, then it may not be so familiar to you. But for the sake of everybody being on the same page, Nathan, would you like to just tell us a little bit about who Tim is and uh, how you managed to get a conversation with this living legend? <laughs> well, living legend is a good line. He was honoured as one of the living treasures of Australia by a number of years ago by the Australian Heritage Commission or some organisation like that. And he has a story where he talks about how he was invited to a dinner with all these amazing Australians and that one of the things that this dinner offered was the opportunity to sit at a table with, you know, some of these people that were honoured and there were, you know, cricketers and tennis players and movie stars and all these famous, famous people. And he kind of, in a little self-deprecating kind of way, tells of the look of disappointment at the people at his table uh, when he turned up. <laughs> <laughs> but Tim Costello has been around for quite a while as far as a public figure in Australia and is probably one of the better known voices of faith in the Australian community. He has a long history of being a spokesperson on a variety of social causes, social issues, started life as a Baptist minister and a lawyer and went on to serve as the mayor of St Kilda here in Melbourne, uh, chief executive officer for World Vision Australia and has continued to play roles in that kind of space and currently serves as the executive director of MICA Australia, which we'll hear from him about a little later, but a number of other public-facing Christian entities that he contributes to that he speaks on behalf of and is someone that simply lends his voice and profile and influence regularly on behalf of the least of these, on behalf of the oppressed, on behalf of justice issues and causes in our society. So someone who has some profile, some significant voice in our community, and so someone who's worth listening to, and is also fascinating to ask some of the questions about where he got to this role that he now fills. And so I've had the opportunity to work with him now for a few years in the context of Micro Australia. I've had conversations with him in the past, and on a few occasions I've had said, you know, can I just ask you some questions about, you know, what you do and how you do it and how, you know, how I can do some of the things that you do in raising his voice, in writing, in speaking. But more recently I had the opportunity as part of uh, ADRA Australia's Masterclass series late last year to sit down with Tim for an hour-long conversation. And the clips that we're going to share today are little snippets from that conversation. 
So, yeah, excited to be able to share this in a different way. And, of course, one of the reasons we're talking about this is the article that I wrote based on this same conversation that is in the April issue of Science of the Times magazine. So when you started your conversation with Tim, I remember one of the very first questions that you asked was about his introduction to to justice. And I think you've already you know talked a little bit about this, but I believe that you asked him where or when he first was uh, introduced to the idea of living a life advocating for the other. Yeah, in preparation for talking with Tim, I read his book, A Lot With A Little, which came out in the last couple of years, found this particular line that caught my attention where he talked about how he hadn't really had a career path, but that his life had been an ethical journey. And I was really interested in that phrase that he used. And so we, so I asked him about that as a starting point of reflecting on his life and work. It's always fascinating to me that young people say to me, I'd love to be a leader. I'd love to end up being a CEO of World Vision. Tell me how you got there. And there's a momentary panic for me. It's like, how did I get there? Because there was no plan or certainly linear strategy around that. I worked as a lawyer. I went and studied theology in Switzerland. I came back and worked as a lawyer pastor in St Kilda. I was passionate about social housing and the number of homeless in St Kilda. I ran for council and became a mayor. I went then after Jeff Kennett jeffed me. <laughs> I was. A, I like to say I was the Last mayor ever of St Kilda. I did such a good job, they abolished the whole council. But it was more to do with Jeff Kennett and local government amalgamations and sacking council. So I then go back to founding a domestic agency called Urban Seed, being a Baptist minister at Collins Street, and World Vision headhunt me. And initially I say no, but then end up going there and having an extraordinary time. So there is... A sense, no, certainly no linear plan, no strategy to get to being CEO, say, of World Vision. There is a sense of uh, the light I've got shows only enough light for the next step. Hmm. I need to take that step. Hmm. And then there's usually darkness, but enough light for one step. And I can't see in the darkness the end of the journey. I'm not quite sure where it, the destination is, but... <laughs> There's enough light for each step, hmm. and that's how my life has been. Um, and it's been an ethical journey in the sense of saying, I trust God. Mm-hmm. I have really, through my career, never applied for a job. Yep. My, fir- my first law job where I got articles was one I did apply for, but since then. Now, I'm not saying that's how it should be for people. <laughs> I'm just telling you my story. Hmm. So uh, the ethical pivot at each time is, is this the right step? Hmm. And should I be waiting and holding or taking that step and trusting God? I really resonated with what he said when he talked about having enough light for each next step sort of thing. Because mm. I think that's 
a lot more close to most of our lives rather than <laughs> having a uh, grand plan revealed at age 12 and then the rest of your life <laughs> unfolds out of that, right? Mm. It's much more a, a matter of stumbling through what is the next step. Yeah, I've never understood people that have a full career path mapped out. That's not been my experience. And, and even yeah, it's good to have goals. It's good to have things that we would like to do. I think that for most people that plan out their lives and have this kind of very career focused, you know, direction kind of to what they think they should be doing or that they want to do. It feels a little bit like a step towards disappointment because most of the best things are the things you haven't planned. And that's, I think, being open, particularly in the context of living a life of faith, to be open to God's leading, to be open to the opportunities to come and to be open to serving others as best we can along the way, I think, is a really strong and powerful way to live. I'm interested as well. The next question that you asked him, you used the word conversion story. Yeah, in faith context, we often talk about conversion stories as these are significant occasions in our lives when we, you know, it's often talked about when we find God or when we discover faith or when those things find us and change our lives in some dramatic way. And we, you know, Christians seem to love conversion stories. But I believe that there is kind of multiple conversion stories that should happen in each of our lives if we're living faithfully. And one of the things that I think is particularly significant is this idea when we're called to see the world beyond ourselves and to look at the world around us and say, hey, God calls us to step out into that world and to serve and to make a difference where we can with the opportunities that we do have. And I think that's just as important a conversion as some of these other moments in our lives and experiences. And so, yeah, I was interested in, as someone who has now got such a high profile in being an advocate and a voice for justice, how what was his conversion experience to the call to do justice in the world? Yes, so I was at the age of 21 convinced I was going to be an evangelist and I'd been doing open air preaching and saw the task very firmly as getting as many people to heaven, saving as many souls as possible, whatever way you could do it. So, you know, really from the age of 16, 17, I had a very clear focus that I was going to be an evangelist. I was at Monash University, I was the president of the Evangelical Union. We'd asked an evangelist, Leighton Ford, brother-in-law of Billy Graham, to come and do an evangelistic crusade. He'd accepted, but then for reasons, he pulled out. And he said, you won't know this person, but he's a South African evangelist called Michael Cassidy. And uh, I've sounded him out, he can come. We didn't know Michael Cassidy, he came. He was an outstanding evangelist, but at 21, I remember in an evangelistic meeting, lots of secular people, he shocked me. He said, you know, the people who devised apartheid and maintain apartheid are church-attending, Bible-reading, prayerful Christians. Hmm. And I can't tell you how much that shocked me because I always assumed if we get enough people saved, Justice and problems in the world will sort themselves out because Christians will do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And him saying, actually, 
Christians are equally capable of doing the wrong thing hmm. profoundly shocked me. And it pushed me on a journey, which eventually took me to theological college to say, actually, there are, Paul's language, principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. That's a form of saying structures, systems, cultures that also have to be named and redeemed by the gospel because just individual hearts caught by those structures, systems and cultures, good Christian hearts <laughs> can, as in South Africa with apartheid, keep doing the wrong thing. So, yeah, it was Michael Cassidy at university that began my journey toward justice. The idea that you can be a Bible-believing, prayerful Christian and yet still also be responsible for so much damage and, and evil in the case of apartheid and in, in the case of racism and systemic oppression as well. Yeah, it's, it's quite uh, confronting, I suppose, to, to think that we can't just make everybody Christians and everything will be fine. And I think one of the things when we talk about these issues in that kind of way with that assumption that you've kind of rebutted there is that what we forget is that even if we converted everybody, we'd still have to change the laws and the structures and the systems because that wouldn't automatically happen because they are there because of history and history you know, is a heavy kind of thing. It you know is a burden on on a lot of aspects of life. And so there is still work to be done, even if we've converted everybody, there's still work to be done to change those policies and systems and laws and that history as much as we can. I think this answer is a, is a fascinating one in the context, larger context that Tim goes into in his book a lot with a little, where he talks about the tension in his faith development between the faith of his father, which was very much focused on the evangelism model, and then the faith of his mother, mother who, which was much more practical and much more focused on the here and now and engaging in the world around us. He spends a little bit of time describing that there was even tension in their home growing up and even look at the the family dynamics where Peter Costello became treasurer of Australia, who's um, Tim's brother, and Tim at the same time was CEO of World Vision and these kind of competing approaches to how we engage with the world. There's some fascinating stuff in his book that kind of expands upon this answer. But I think as far as that recognition that he had, and then he went, as he mentioned in his previous answer, that he went and studied uh, theology at a seminary in Switzerland where he actually spent his time sort of researching that. And he wrote his dissertation on... Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr and his approach to theology and the world and the engagement between the two. So there's there's some fascinating detail and some deep thinking behind this pretty uh, this introduction that he gave us in that answer. That is fascinating. And leading into what you asked him next, one of the things that I've found in my Christian walk is that Christians tend to fall into one of two camps when it comes to politics. Either mm -hmm. we try to put politics at the door when we walk into the church building and as much as possible try to shy away from engaging our Christian faith with politics, 
or we mm. just shove it in everybody's faces, whether they like it or not, sort of thing. <laughs> but you asked him about what Christians in particular have to say to our current culture. What role does faith play in our Western society today? Yes, so I think Christian faith is actually the uh, echo of conscience in our society, the echo that is still the most important framing of who we are, even though there is a deep secular hostility, the brand church has been trashed or some self-inflicted through Royal Commission uh, showing the abuse of kids, Mm. but the echo is really strong. One of my favourite writers of recent days, well, he's a secular historian, Tom Holland. He's written a book called Dominion. Mm -hmm. And he says, when secular people think their values come from the Greeks or the Romans, they don't. The Greeks and the Romans were into brutality (laughs) and strength and uh, domination. They had no no virtue for humility. Humility was a Christian virtue, forgiveness and mercy and care for the least. These were profoundly different Christian virtues. So even when secular Australia is judging the church, the fascinating thing is they're judging the church on the basis of Christian criteria. Mm. They have forgotten that these are Christian criteria. Mm. Mercy, forgiveness, humility, justice. I think even Richard Dawkins, the leading Oxford uh, atheist said, I'm a Christian secularist. Mm -hmm. He actually acknowledged, and that was good, Mm -hmm. that, that he knows where those values come from. They come from Jesus, who came to serve, not be served. To show a love that doesn't know when to stop, that goes right over the top, as we see in the cross. These are Christian virtues. Uh, Yeah, I thought that was a fascinating reflection there on particularly that idea of the that the world around us judges the church by Christian values. And I think that that's something that we should spend some time thinking about, that idea. When, When people are critical of the church, often it's because the church and people of faith are not living up to what they say they should be and what they've even the influence that they have had in the past on people around them, on, on our societies, are the things that come back and, you know, it's kind of good at times that there is an accountability for the things that we say that we believe, particularly in the wake of scandals that we have with Christian leaders, with Christian organisations that really are an aberration of the values that Jesus taught and the values that Christianity proclaims. That's a really important critique for us to listen to. It really is. And, you know, as you were talking, I just kind of thought to myself, what would happen if we did a thought experiment where we were to theoretically remove the influence of Christianity on the Western world? You know, what would Mm. the Western world look like? You know, Tim spoke just then about how, you know, the Greeks and the Romans didn't consider compassion and mercy, mm. altruism to be a, a virtue worth caring about. It was a sign of weakness. 
What would happen if Christianity was suddenly removed? What would our society look like today? And Mm. I think it's a testament to the power of the cross and the power of the message of Jesus that even people today who have no allegiance to the name of Jesus still expect people to treat them with the respect and dignity that Jesus prescribes in the Gospels. Mm. And for institutions, whether it be the government or whether it be the church, to still live by those same principles. Yeah, a lot of self-reflection there. I think it'd be an interesting thing to think about also the people that choose not to be part of the church, to not to be part of a religion in that sense, because they have higher ethical standards than that. That should be a so, you know, for those of us who work and speak in a church context, then that should be something that gives us some serious pause for thought. And, you know, how do we get beyond that? How do we become a group of people, a community of faith that is actually a step forward in people's moral journey? You then get into a little bit of the nuance between how that Christian faith works itself out in different let's say, political spheres. You talk about, well, okay, justice is great. We're all theoretically in favour of justice, but it gets a little bit more tricky when you try to define what justice looks like depending on whether you sit on the, the right or the left or perhaps somewhere in between. Well, I, let me let me take you to Isaiah because um, Jesus quoted Isaiah more than any other of the Hebrew scriptures, and justice is interspersed with righteousness or justice. So, the picture of the kingdom coming in Isaiah is a picture of deliverance, seventeen verses at least, righteousness and justice again, seventeen verses, healing and peace. And when Jesus announces the kingdom of God, concretely, it means mm. deliverance. Righteousness, justice, joy, healing, and peace. That's actually what this kingdom Jesus proclaims is. Now, the, the righteousness, justice is two, is twofold. It's a righteousness that's personal. Mm-hmm. It has to do with, uh, my sense of doing right. And if I fail, being clothed in Christ, who is my righteousness. And it's social. It's not just personal. It is, God setting the world right. I think what lots of Christians have lost about justice is that the gospel Jesus proclaimed, Isaiah proclaimed, is what does the world look like if God runs the show? Hmm. What does it look like if God rules? When heaven and earth meet in uh, biblical times, that was the temple. Well, first the tabernacle, then it was the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus says, my body is my temple, a crucified, resurrected body. In other words, that's where heaven and earth meets. That's where God dwells. That's how this kingdom, with a king who's come to live with us, to have relationship with us, who desires to be with us, says, this is what the world will look like. It will look like a just world. Now, coming to your question, what does justice mean? Hmm. It has both left and right dimensions to it. On the left side, it's care for the environment, for refugees, it's care for greater equality and the poor. Mm. On the right side, it is family, marriage, and uh, low enough taxes so that there is 
incentive to work hard, to save, to be responsible, to start businesses that employ people. And I often say to Christians, um, maybe this will be too provocative and our night will be over very, very quickly, <laughs> Nathan. I often say to Christians, I can't see the point of voting for the same party all your life. Mm-hmm. It's a waste of democracy. I'm a swinging voter because I say sometimes there will be times when the left concept of justice you should support, refugees, environment, equality. Mm. Sometimes you should support the right side, the importance of these issues around marriage, family, anti-abortion. There will be a number of those issues. Mm. But my biblical view about uh, politics is Given original sin, the temptation that power corrupts, Mm. it is fantastic to be able to vote vote governments out of power, let them reflect, let them be (laughs) humbled, bring them back. Yep. So I've never quite understood why every Christian wouldn't be a swinging voter because the kingdom of God, God's justice involves both elements Mm. of that left and right. And, And if I can make one final statement, what disappoints me often most about Christians is they're so predictable. <laughs> they're so predictable. I, I, I go, please surprise me. I want to hear a Christian who says, I'm passionately against abortion. I'm so pro-life. I'm for life. And in the same breath say, I'm passionately against fossil fuels. I'm so for the environment. Mm. But usually you don't get Christians saying that. They'll predictably go one way or the other. Well, that went in a direction that I didn't quite expect. I I really did enjoy his piece on the benefits of left and right in terms of... I just think that most people have a natural inclination one way or the other. We Mm. have... You know, there's there's a nurture or nature sort of argument about whether you're going to swing conservative or more liberal. But I, mm. I definitely think that even temperament-wise, there is a lot of grace and there's a lot of beauty in being a certain way. And then we shouldn't be ashamed of that. I think he illustrated that quite well. And in Australia, we're in the we're recording this in the context of an election campaign. Uh, I thought his advice on voting was at least thought-provoking, even if you don't agree. But, yeah, the idea of his critique of Christians is so predictable, I thought was a useful comment. And just and that we shouldn't have politicians who take the Christian vote, whichever way that is, for granted. That we as Christians should be thoughtful and analytical, be always open to different ideas and different ways of looking at particular issues, that we shouldn't be predictable and that we should recognize that at different times in history at different points that perhaps one aspect of this does need to be a corrective against the other and that our our faith is very broad in its application along some of the social and political issues that catch our attentions and we shouldn't certainly shouldn't be single issue voters Mm. that we should be open to trying to balance the different needs in a community because that is exactly what politics is, is recognising that one group shouldn't always have it their own way. 
that one issue shouldn't be the dominant thing that is all we ever think or vote or talk about in those ways. And so I think that there's some wisdom in that invitation to be a at least an open voter, if not a swinging voter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 even that at times it's worth changing leadership for the benefit of getting some fresh ideas and some fresh energy into these things. One of the things that I've learned from my engagement with politics in company with Tim Costello and with others is simply that we shouldn't be so cynical about it, mm-hmm. that we should recognise that it's important enough to take seriously. It's not the answer to everything, but it is important enough for us to get involved to educate ourselves about some of the issues, to recognise some of the things that we're passionate about, perhaps influenced by our faith and driven by our faith, but then to use our vote and our voice for making a difference in the, in the things that we're passionate about. And so we should be, I think we, you know, being cynical about politics and politicians is too easy. We're actually, as people of faith, we're called to do better than that and to to look for the good and to be champions of the good in whatever ways we can. And being political is one of the ways that we can do that. And I think that leads us into our the next question, which was on this, what Tim describes as his temptation to be capital P political. And uh, so I asked him about that and his engagement in that way. So there's small p and there's big p political. Small p is certainly what I am. That That is that if uh, God's will is to be done on earth, if we are to see, to demonstrate what the world looks like if God runs the show, hmm. if we are to actually understand the good news, the good news, Oiangalian in Greek, mm-hmm. proclaimed Jesus is Lord. It was highly political. Caesar Augustus had uh, signs in stone all around the Roman world announcing the good news. Caesar Augustus brings the peace of Rome to the whole world. The Christians announce something highly political. No, Jesus is Lord. Mm. And the peace of Jesus is offered to the whole world. That was profoundly small p political. Big p political means political in a partisan sense. Mm. And I think it's great. The Christians might be members of Liberal, Labor, Greens, whatever. I think that's really good. But I faced with the options of going straight into Parliament. The initial offer was when the Democrats were around and I would have been the replacement for Sid Spindler, a casual vacancy, go straight in, doesn't get easier than that. And uh, I turned it down. I felt, no, my calling is to be small p political. Mm-hmm. At one level, I felt, Nathan, as soon as you become a politician, the problem is nobody trusts you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I felt I was still trusted as a minister of the gospel. So that's a that's a pretty good reflection. It seems that Tim knows himself well enough to be able to know what his calling is. 
and uh, what he's here to do. So I'm very sorry for anybody who was wanting to see him on the docket for the next election. But you switch gears in your discussion with Tim, Nathan. You, you go from talking about politics into justice and you ask him about people in the church. You talk about the idea of donating and giving a donation or an offering or whatever the case may be versus investing in justice on a on a deep level taking it personally having having sort of skin in the game i guess there's a temptation you know we've talked about tim's temptation into politics i think there's a temptation away from politics and one of the ways we do that in many settings is you know let's give a donation that'll solve it and we'll leave it at that and i think i wanted to ask him about that dynamic as well about the idea that if we just make a donation to our favorite charity is that is that enough in the world or should we be engaged in something a bit more focused on the justice issues that we may be supporting by our donations but what's the next step beyond just giving the donation Yes, yeah, so I think one of the ministries of the church, besides the priestly role and the pastoral role, is the prophetic role. And I think the church uh, often is nervous about that. For good reason, the prophets often get stoned or beat up or uh, are persecuted. Uh, and getting the tone right uh, with in being prophetic without sounding arrogant, self-righteous, lecturing is, mm. is tough. But the prophetic role really is saying we uh, need to have proximity to power without being in the pocket of power mm. in order to speak truth in love to power. Micah, which Adra is a wonderful member of, practices what we call relational advocacy, 300 uh, people each year to Canberra and usually the first week uh, of December. We lobby over 150-plus politicians after people being trained in a relational advocacy. And the power of it is we aren't advocating for ourselves, for our church, our needs, our budget. We're advocating for the world's poor, which surprises politicians. Hmm. They go, most lobbyists want something from us, from our budget. Yeah. You actually want it for people who will never vote for us? That's selfless. That's now, I think that's prophetic. And Adra has been a wonderful part of that. So I think that importance of saying we believe all power ultimately because we believe God is sovereign, is delegated. We will hold you accountable for the use of that power with love, mm. speaking truth. We will therefore deliberately have some proximity to power. In a democracy, it's a bit easier. You can write to your local politician and get a meeting. And we won't be in, your, in the pocket of power. Uh, we will not simply go, well, you're a lovely guy and, uh, yes, you lowered my tax and that's great. Therefore, <laughs> I'll tell everybody you're a love. Actually, the mark of Christianity is saying I exist for others. How is power being used for others? So uh, I think that's the prophetic word.
So 10 years ago, one of the staff from ADRA Australia invited me to go with him and a couple of other people on a trip to Canberra. And I thought that was a pretty cool idea. It was my introduction to Micro Australia. So most years they run an event called Voices for Justice, which is where they bring together Christians from right across Australia and representatives from the various agencies that make up Micro Australia, including ADRA and a number of other Christian development and justice agencies. Micro grew out of Micro Challenge, uh, which was a Christian response to the Millennium Development Goals in the early 2000s, where a group of mainly evangelical Christians started talking about the need for uh, a stronger Christian voice to advocate on behalf of the, the poor of the world. And you know, with the focus on the Millennium Development Goals that then transitioned to the Sustainable Development Goals, you know, up until the setbacks that have come with the COVID pandemic, there was some really good progress being made in dropping the levels of extreme poverty around the world by significant margins. In 1990, about as high as 40% of the world's population was listed as living in extreme poverty. And of course, there's technical definitions for these terms. Uh, And by about 2018, that number had dropped from 40% to about 11% of the world's population. And so that's a massive change that's been made to people's quality of life in so many parts of the world. And of course, there are other measures that that do this, like access to clean water, things like maternal health, life expectancy, the number of children living till their fifth birthday. All of these things were monitored, tracked and prioritised under the Millennium Development Goals. And we could see that the world was making significant progress in addressing issues of extreme poverty and so many of the disadvantages and the health issues that come with that. And so this is that's kind of the background to MICA. In 2012, when I first went to Canberra, we were talking about the pro- really strong progress that been, had been made under the uh, Millennium Development Goals and the particularly the commitment to aid that was being made by the, particularly the world's wealthiest countries to help the, the world's poorest countries. And, you know, at that point, Australia had a really strong commitment to increasing our aid levels to 0.7% of gross national product. That was kind of the international standard that we're all working towards. And frustratingly, Australia in the past 10 years has gone backwards dramatically on that to where we're one of the least generous developed nations in the world when it comes to our support of international efforts to alleviate poverty and to develop people's resilience and opportunities to live well and to live better. So that's my experience of advocacy has been, in many ways, has been going backwards. But Mm. there have been some, there's some other progress along the way. And I guess that's one of the things that we've seen with the work of MICA has been the, the continued raising of the voice on these issues. And particularly engaging with Christians in a number of the developing nations of the South Pacific and in Australia's sort of neighbour relationship that we have with them. And then, yeah, and then just in the last few years, Tim Costello then stepped into uh, the invitation to become the executive director of MICA. Then we asked him to explain, give us the quick pitch of what MICA is about and why he's a part of it.
Yes, and like our Australia uh, has been going quite a long time. World Vision was a member when I was CEO of World Vision. Hmm. It was mainly focused, because it's a global movement, not just Australia, hmm. on um, biblical holism, integrated mission practice of justice and evangelism. So it was sort of a Bible teaching, you know, resources ministry. When I uh, was seconded by World Vision initially to go and work as the new director of Micro Australia was in fairly low ebb, and so we've resurrected it. Its uh, membership is the Christian faith-based charities, so think World Vision, ADRA, Caritas, Salvation Army, Baptist World Aid, mm. to do advocacy that at times is difficult for those charities to do and to help organise them to also speak with a one, one voice. So... When is it difficult? Well, there's a number of those charities. World Vision's one that's still in Afghanistan with an expat female director. Micah, that's leading a campaign, Christians United for Afghanistan, 20,000 additional places. Let's get them out. Difficult for World Vision and some others to actually be seen advocating or to be heard advocating. They must protect their staff. They're planning to stay. They're hoping to stay. So sometimes Micah does those things that members can't do. Mm. Secondly, Micah coordinates and brings out the best. So uh, of recent days, aside from the campaign for um, Christians United for Afghanistan, we've been running End COVID for All campaign. And being able to unite not just the MICA members, but actually all the secular a- agency members, and with this end COVID for all campaign, Business Council of Australia, Burnett Institute, a whole lot of other secular agencies going well. That's great. So MICA sometimes has a reach way beyond its two and a half staff. So one of the things that Micro Australia ha- and the various of the people that have been engaging with it have been focused on over its life cycle has been the issue of Australian aid and our support of the least of these in our world, whether we as a nation are a generous nation or not. And this is something that we've gone backwards in over the past decade and something that continues to be a really strong focus for Micro and for the lobbying that Tim Costello does. And I think that this is something that in an election season should be something that's a higher priority, but it just seems that in every budget, in every time, and there are political reasons, there are political dynamics to this issue, but particularly at the moment in the context of a world that has had significant setbacks in the context of the COVID pandemic, in development, in its economic life cycle, this is something that we need to get a new focus on. And so Tim, I asked him about yeah, this focus. Yeah, so Australian government has to uh, find a conscience again. We are we are right at the bottom of the OECD now in generosity when it comes to aid. You know, Australians uh, like to think they uh, have some reason to think we're generous, we're optimistic, we uh, carry our share of the burden when it comes to aid. They'd be shocked to see 
what our government has done. It has mm. been mean. It has been unfair. It has cost lives. The cuts uh, in the Abbott hockey budget of nearly $1.5 billion were devastating mm. for women, women and girls' health, for the programs that actually give people a, a, a start on the rung of life and up. So we are, Mike, I've always said that restoring restoring that aid is really a measure of uh, saying this is a practical expression of loving the poor, of mm. uh, saying God sees them, cares for them. Now, Australians are still very generous giving to the World Visions and ADRAs and others privately. Mm. They just, it's for technical, political reasons, complex to communicate what government is giving. But it's uh, about 19 cents in $100 of GDP, 19 cents, 0.19. Our promise is 70 cents, which the Scandinavians and the Dutch are all, the Brits are all giving. Uh, That shows how far off Australia is. We're at 19 cents. And we've given ourselves a leave passing compassion. So Micah is very, very focused on that. So it's really inspiring what uh, Tim's doing and the rest of his little team in MICA and all the amazing institutions and NGOs that are involved in in MICA, including ADRA, of course. But Nathan, you asked him a question a little bit later after this about you and me, the average everyday person. It's very easy, I think, for us to hear somebody like Tim who's got such a such a colourful, such a accomplished record of, of being the CEO of World Vision and, you know, lobbying in Canberra on behalf of ju- the cause of justice and, and all this stuff. And it's easy for us to just kind of go, oh, well, let's just leave it to guys like Tim. He'll, he'll do all the good work and we'll just kind of sit back and applaud him and, you know, pray for him and all that sort of stuff. But you said, hey, Tim, what are some of the things that you and I can do? Should we just leave it to, to the politicians and the, and the political lobbyists? Or is there something that we can actually do to enact change where we are? I, I, I think Christians uh, are the purveyors of hope because of the resurrection. Hmm. We actually have this uh, at the heart of our faith this hope that grave where is your victory death where is your sting this sense that the, the greatest fear every every one of us lives with is that life is meaningless and death proves how meaningless it is and in the gospel that great fear is addressed in the gospel evil in the cross particularly evil is addressed god absorbing it Mm. so whether it's death whether it's evil they are the things that evaporate hope Mm. Uh, christians above all are purveyors of hope merchants of hope so when it comes then to politics so that doesn't mean the politicians can institute the kingdom of god but it does mean they can approximate the kingdom of God. They can have policies that are closer or further away from the kingdom of God. Mm. And we should be hopeful to help them be constructive in approximating that kingdom of God. That's, that's how hope functions for me. 
So, leading on from what you just mentioned about compassion, you cited in uh, a follow-up question to Tim about politicians warning against excessive compassion. Now, I must admit that's not something that I ever considered, whether you can be too compassionate or not. (laughs) But you did cite Peter Dutton in his uh, warning against this. Yeah, I think, and it's something that I've come across in a few different places in uh, the context of American politics, but also in Australian politics, this kind of idea that being compassionate is something that's dangerous because it will lead us to being too soft on people that we shouldn't be too soft on. And I think that's, uh, you know, that might make sense in a political context. It doesn't make sense in our calling to be people of faith who one of our leading virtues should be compassion. And I think there is sometimes a tension between, well, there often is a tension between politics and faith. And this is one of the key ones, I think, in our world today, that we are called to be compassionate. Politicians might not always think that that's their calling, but as people of faith, that is our calling. And that is something that we should call our communities and our societies and our nations too. And so I asked Tim about his perspective on where compassion fits in some of these debates and these arguments that we have as a society. Well, we we have to decide, uh, do we follow Jesus or not? Jesus showed that God has a heartbreaking with compassion, that his followers are to be people marked by compassion. Mm. Um, people are touched not by just impressive demonstrations of excellence, sporting, artistic, whatever it is. They're touched by someone who cares. When mm. someone cares, there is a profound movement within a person's heart and being. Compassion our God, as a compassionate God, uh, is is the good news. So uh, we just have to say when someone says, "Don't be compassionate," they they they're not they're not talking for God. <laughs> yes. It's the very opposite. I guess one of the things that's often talked about in the context of compassion and being people who are called to be compassionate is, I guess, the corollary is compassion fatigue. And I think that's a real thing in our world today, that there's so many things that demand our attention, that demand our compassion, our generosity, our time, all of those things that we can contribute to the world. How do we keep that in focus without burning out? And so many people that are engaged with seeking to do good in the world uh, really struggle with resilience in that sense. You know, how can you always be soft-hearted when there is so much tragedy, so much trouble, so much trauma in the world around us. And so as someone like Tim Costello who has spent his life with these kind of issues, who has been seen and been to and seen some of the hardest tragedies in the world, how does he keep his compassion, his soft heart in that context, in, in I guess in the face of the realities of the world in which we live? Yes, so I have always been very clear that I'm not the Messiah. (laughs) And this is God's world. 
and I'll be engaged whilst I believe God has not given up on this world. If God has given up on this world, I'd give up. Hmm. I'd go, no. That's, hmm. that's me, therefore, trying to do what only God can do because I believe God is profoundly engaged with this world and invites me to do a little bit. That's my perspective. Secondly, it's my daily devotions. It's a group of blokes I've met with for over 40 years who ground me, who pray for me. And it's really that sense that I need to be faithful, whatever the results. Yeah. And in being faithful, uh, God, God will continue to nourish me. I really, really resonated with when he he said that he's not a savior, that we actually have a savior. <laughs> His name is Jesus. He's taken on the, the troubles and the woes and the sins of the world, but that we do have a small calling in the midst of it. And I guess what better way to sum up Tim's life? Not that his life is over. There's still lots of it to go, hopefully. But what a great way to sum up a, a lead life. I think what a great way to sum up a, a conversation about that life. I think, I think I've had a bit of a light bulb moment, Nathan, where I've realized that so many of us as, as Christians, and again, many of our listeners are not Christian, and that's totally cool too. But if you are a person of faith, it's very easy to allow your faith to be directed by other things, whether it be mm -hmm. your politics, whether it be the family of upbringing, whether it be your cultural heritage. And of course, those color and those affect our faith in meaningful ways. But here's a person who has allowed his faith to direct his politics not the other way around. Yeah. And that that's that's powerful and that's sort of like a yeah, that's a bit of a reminder for me to not just blindly side with my team based on the fact mm. that they're my team and I'm part of their tribe, but actually to hold my team to the faith standard that I should be holding myself to as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it shows the value of faith as a foundation for our lives. You know, we can build who we are, uh, what we stand for in the world based on this external reality to ourselves. And I think that's one of the key things that faith offers us, that, that being a follower of Jesus in the world is something that doesn't just take us away from the issues of the world. Some of these things we talk about in an abstract political sense are actually things that matter to people's lives. But because of the foundation we have in who Jesus is and what he taught us and our following of him, we have a really strong foundation for stepping into the world and speaking on behalf of things that are good and right. And that we do that with compassion, with uh, integrity and with generosity in that way and we use the best of our faith as a way of seeking the good of others mm. and i think one of the reasons i admire tim costello and appreciate the opportunity i've had to to work with him a little bit and to speak with him in this way is because i rec recognize and respect him as someone who does that 
And I hope that that's come through in our conversation today and in sharing these little bits of his experience and wisdom and insights. Well, folks, I uh, I think that's a good place to end it. I want to thank Tim Costello first and foremost for giving of his time to the lovely Adra donors and folks <laughs> over there at that brilliant masterclass. And thank you, Nathan, for doing that interview and for being uh, so generous as to share it with the rest of us. And of course, if you want to reflect on it a little more deeply or at your own leisure, you can check out the article in the April issue of the Science Magazine. Folks, that is all for us. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. This episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A print subscription is $28 a year or just $14 for a digital subscription. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Thank you.